Hi, this is Pastor Curtis. I want to thank you for checking out the Family Church Podcast. I hope it encourages you and inspires you to take your next step of faith. You can find out more about how to do that at our website, familychurch.xyz. And if you know a friend who needs to hear this message, please forward it on to them. I hope you enjoy the message. You know, having been involved in public ministry for almost 40 years, first first few years as a youth pastor and then for the past 34 or so years as a lead pastor, I've had a ringside seat to how people respond to suffering and or tragic situations, specifically how some people find faith in suffering while others maybe lose their faith through hardship and suffering. Some people can be cruising along through life. They go to church. They believe what they've always believed. And then something out of left field happens, some kind of unforeseen tragedy or bad situation strikes. And then they wonder, where's God? God, where where are you? And many of us, probably all of us at some point in our life have found ourselves thinking or asking that same question. And those who don't get a good answer, oftentimes, sadly, oftentimes end up walking away from from faith. And then you have uh, those people who experience some hardship or even tragedy of some type, and the opposite happens. They, They don't lose faith, they actually lean into God and they come to faith through that unforeseen, unfortunate situation. Or if they were already a person of faith, their faith actually grows and becomes stronger through that tragedy, or hardship. Why is that? Why is that? Furthermore, in my experience, what I found is that those who leverage injustice and suffering as an argument against the existence of God, usually, think about this, they usually, not always, but they usually leverage the injustice and suffering of uh, of other people. It's not even their own suffering or injustice. Ever notice that? When someone argues against the existence of God by by pointing out some pain or suffering, they usually, again, not always, but they usually reference someone else's pain. And and oftentimes, it's not even anyone they know. Years ago, I was up at the dairy bar, and uh, T.J. Bivens and some of the good old boys were up there solving all the world's problems like they always did, flipping quarters. And I don't even know how this came up, but some, somehow the topic of God came up. And of course, I was sitting in the non-smoking section. <laughs> See, those of you that laugh, you, you know what the dairy bar is about, about half the size of the stage. And you walk in, you got to walk through the smoking section, another five feet to get to the non-smoking section. So anyway, I was in the non-smoking section and somehow, again, I don't even know how this came up, but the subject of God came up, the existence of God and at one point, TJ made this comment. He said, how can you say there's a God when you have children over in Africa who are born without any legs or arms? It's like, where, where, did, where did that come from? Who said anything about children over in Africa with no arms or legs? But I get it. I get it. He, he was defaulting to an extreme argument to support his view that there was no God, someone that he didn't even know. My point being, that's exactly what many people do. They point to the, the general pain and suffering in the world, and they say, look at all this pain and suffering in the world. How can there be a good God? But they rarely ever point to their own pain and suffering. In fact, you've likely not only heard this argument, you maybe have made it yourself, and it goes like this. And tell me if you've heard this before. If God is so loving, 
If God is so good, why is there so much injustice and suffering in the world? To which I would say, I mean, I mean really, if, if this is something you're really wrestling with, or maybe you've walked away from faith for this reason, here, here's my suggestion. Talk to those who have or are enduring tragedy or hardship, but who were able to maintain their faith in spite of their personal pain and suffering. Because to me, maybe it's just me, but to me it seems disingenuous to point to the suffering of people you don't even know as evidence that there is no God. Now, if you want to leverage your own suffering as evidence not to believe in God, I get it. That, you know, in fact, we're going to talk about that this morning. But I don't think that we should borrow other people's pain and suffering to draw a conclusion about God that the people who are actually having the pain and suffering and experiencing injustice don't even conclude. Because in many instances, they draw a different conclusion. In fact, when you hear their story, you find that in their injustice, in their suffering, they actually experience the grace and the sustaining power of God. Now, if your story is, no, no, pastor, I'm not leveraging anybody's pain and suffering but my own. If you were a person of faith and until some tragic or traumatic event struck, and, and these usually have to do with the loss of a loved one or loved ones, but if that's you, listen, I would never, ever judge you for doing that. So question, what makes the difference between those two responses? Why is it that tragedy pushes some people away from God and others to God? If you've ever defended your lack of faith because of pain and suffering in the world, here's something that you need to know. Pain and suffering doesn't disprove the existence of God. All pain and suffering proves is that the God who doesn't allow pain and suffering doesn't exist. That's all that proves. I'm going to read that again. All pain and suffering proves is that the God who doesn't allow pain and suffering doesn't exist. We can't deny that there's pain and suffering in the world, right? So clearly, there is no God who doesn't allow pain and suffering in the world. We can all agree on that, right? Well, this is the 9.30 crowd. I guess since we didn't have the 8 o'clock, you're still asleep here. We threw, threw you off, right? If your thing is, I don't believe in God because there's pain and suffering in the world, we agree. As a, Christ, as, as a Jesus follower, I would wholeheartedly agree with it. We don't believe in a God who doesn't allow pain and suffering in the world either because there's pain and suffering in the world. On the contrary, it's actually worse. As disturbing as it sounds, we believe in a God who allowed the worst possible thing to happen to the best possible person, Jesus Christ. That's what we believe because that's what happened. More on that in just a minute. If you've been tracking along with us, we're concluding a series titled Faithful, Fueling Your Faith in a World on Empty. And the premise of this series is that when Jesus showed up in the first century, his agenda for his followers was that they be men and women of big, bold, active faith. Faith that would do things and confront things and change things, which explains why his initial invitation was not just believe in me, but follow me. And as we've seen, when you follow Jesus, he will orchestrate the circumstances and events of your life in a way that will force you to exercise your faith and trust him. Jesus never intended people to simply believe true things about him. He invited us to follow him, to wake up every single day with this question, and we looked at this question in every message of the series. So here it is, because it's a fair question. What would I do 
How would I respond? What, what choices and decisions would I make today? What would I attempt if I was confident, absolutely confident that God is with me? So in this series, we've been looking at some faith catalysts, things that, things that will help grow our faith. And we began the series looking at practical teaching. When people tell their, their faith stories, they talk about the first time that someone explained the Bible to them in a very practical way, a way that they could actually apply it to their daily lives. And the reason application is important is because that's where our faith intersects with God's faithfulness. And, and when, when that happens, that's when our faith begins to get traction and begins to grow and blow up. The second one was personal ministry. People talk about the first time that they stepped into a role that they felt totally unprepared for or unequipped for. It might have been you've served in one of our children's classes. Maybe you helped out with a youth group. Maybe you went on a missions trip. Maybe you came and served at our food pantry. You stepped into a situation that you were kind of scared of. You'd never been in that environment before. You didn't know what was going to happen. But afterwards, on the backside of it, you were so glad that you did it because God met you there when your faith intersected with God's faithfulness. So practical teaching, personal ministry. The third thing was providential relationships. When people tell their faith story, it always, not, you know, not, not always, but you know, oftentimes, involves other people. I wasn't really a church person. I really wasn't a Jesus or anything like that. I didn't read the Bible, but then I met this girl. Or then I met this guy. Or then these neighbors moved in next door to us. And, and, and they invited our kids to church. And then we thought, you know, our kids really enjoyed it, so we decided to go. And then we ended up accepting Christ and have never looked back. Providential relationships is another thing God uses to grow up our faith. Then last week, we looked at private disciplines or private spiritual disciplines. People talk about the first time that they begin to, to pray consistently, to, to, to predetermine that they were going to set aside some time each day in, in, in Bible reading. Uh, people that predetermine they're going to give uh, in, in, uh, in a uh, percentage-wise, not just situationally, not just dropping a, a check or some cash in every now and then, but being a percentage giver. Things that began as ought to's, but eventually became want to's because we trusted God in that area and stepped out in faith. And those things can be tremendous faith builders. Today, we come to our fifth and final faith catalyst, and it is pivotal circumstances. Pivotal circumstances. When people tell their faith story, they'll talk about an important, significant, defining event that happened, something that, something that stands out as being a pivotal time in their life and in their faith journey. Sometimes these are positive events, like a marriage, the birth of a child. Often those, those are things that cause people to consider or reconsider faith. I remember when our first child, Chelsea, was born, and when the nurse handed her to me for the very first time, something came over me that I had never experienced before. I didn't recognize it at the time, but I think it was my very first paternal instinct. And, 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 and I was holding her, and I, was, I just kind of was just looking down into her eyes. And I remember thinking, I remember thinking, if it ever got from my head to my heart that my heavenly father could love and care about me as much as I do this little girl, that would change my life. That would change my life. So weddings, the birth of a child, career changes, these, these can all be positive events that are divinely orchestrated by God that come along to help increase our faith. But there are also sometimes negative experiences that come our way. Perhaps the loss of a child 15 months after staring into the eyes of our first child with tears of joy, I was staring into the eyes of our second child, also a little girl, but not with tears of joy this time. This time it was through tears of pain and sorrow because she was stillborn at 41 weeks. And this time the wonder I experienced wasn't, 
wasn't the noun wonder, but the verb, as in, I wonder where God is at now. I wonder where God is at now. In fact, some of you might be in the middle of a pivotal circumstance right now. You may be, you might be back in church for the first time in a long time because you're in the middle of a pivotal circumstance and you need something. And you're not even sure what that is. And you're not even sure if there is a something. And for the first time, or perhaps the first time in a long time, you find yourself wrestling with this very thing. And the fact that I'm even talking about it is making you nervous right now as I'm speaking, right? And for some of you today, this may be a defining moment. Not because my sermon's so good, but because of the pivotal circumstance that you're going through right now. And you all have lived long enough to know how this works. Because everything's fine until it's not. Right? Everything's fine until it's not. And when it's not, we have a decision to make. It was C.S. Lewis who said, said it so well. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. You can barely hear God when things are up and to the right, when things are going well, when all the bills are paid, the kids are doing well, and the marriage is better than it's ever been. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And maybe today in this moment or this season of life, it's as if the pain and sorrow have awakened you and you're asking important questions for the first time in a long time. Because the truth is, we're fine without God until we're not. And when we're not, that's an opportunity for our faith to grow. Now, if you're a bit skeptical, that's fine. I get it. I mean, it's not difficult to be skeptical of a supposed loving, caring God when some disturbed person walks into an elementary school and shamelessly, ruthlessly guns down 19 elementary kids and a couple of teachers. And that leaves us Christians with, with the daunting task of trying to explain or defend this loving God that we say we serve. And Jesus died for the sins of the world, and God loves us, and yet the world is a total wreck, and people are dying all the time, and children are, are suffering. So we've got this unresolvable tension that we need to address the problem is it's unresolvable because the truth is the God who doesn't allow pain and suffering, he doesn't exist. He doesn't exist. If he did, there would be no pain and suffering in the world. And when you look at the lives of those who lived out their faith during the first century, people like Matthew, who was a tax collector, and, and Mark, who, who knew Peter, and Luke, who interviewed all the eyewitnesses, and, and John, who traveled around with Jesus, and Peter himself, who was with Jesus from the beginning, and the apostle Paul, who hated Christians and became a Christian, when, when you look at their lives, you'll find that they all suffered as well. In many cases, they suffered more than we can imagine. Even though, think about this, even though they were smack dab in the middle of God's will at the epicenter of what God was doing on this planet, they were right in the center of God's will and many of them were still martyred for their faith. Still, they somehow maintained their faith in a good and loving God. In fact, the majority of those who wrote the New Testament were martyred for their faith, including James. Think about this, the brother of Jesus. Think about this. The guy who, this guy was killed for believing that his brother was his savior. And if you were to ask the New Testament writers, how can you believe in a God who allows bad things to happen to good people? You know what their response would be? I'll tell you. 
Here's what James, the brother of Jesus, who was murdered for believing that his brother was the Messiah, here's how he would answer that question, how can you believe in a God who allows bad things to happen to good people? James 1 verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. All these things, James tells us. All these hardships and traumatic events that are hard to to reconcile with a loving God, James tells us that they're tests. Which begs the question, testing for what? What are they testing? Let's read on, James 1, verse 3. Because you know that the testing of your, here's our word, faith. Faith is being tested. Our confidence in God is being tested. And what's the point of God allowing our faith to be tested, James? What's the point in all of this? He tells us, he says, you know what the testing of your faith, here's here's, here's the point. It produces perseverance, or more specifically, it produces persevering or enduring faith. Literal translation, it makes your faith bigger. When you meet a person who has big faith, big, enduring, unshakable faith, I promise you, I promise you, dear ones, you're talking to a person whose faith has been tested because wrinkle-free days do not create great faith. In fact, here's a sobering thought. We don't even know what we actually believe until what we claim to believe has been tested. Until it's been tested, our faith is just believe in me faith. And believe in me faith won't sustain you for very long in this broken, messed up world. It's not until we begin to live out our faith in the real world that it becomes follow me faith. And the reason, listen, if you walked away from faith or are struggling with your faith right now, It could be because perhaps for the first time, your faith is being tested and you are discovering what you truly believe. And that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. If on the other side, you came out with your faith intact. Greg Laurie, pastor and author from Southern California, said this once. He said, a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. A faith that can't be tested tested, can't be trusted, because if our faith hasn't been tested, come on, we don't really know if we really believe what we claim to believe. And he speaks from experience, because he had a son who was killed by a drunk driver. And as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, Jesus was intentional about orchestrating the circumstances and situations of life in a way that tested his disciples' faith and forced them, forced them to trust him. We see it in the feeding of the 5,000 when the disciples came to Jesus and told him to send the crowds home to get something to eat. It's getting late, Jesus, and they're getting hungry. And you remember Jesus' response? He told the disciples, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. At which point, I'm sure they all had perplexed looks on their faces, like, how are we going to do that? They had to trust him. The point being, and this might be hard for some of you to accept, but We all have to embrace this. Jesus orchestrated and allowed pivotal circumstances for his disciples in order to get them ready for what was coming. What was coming? The cross was coming. So at the very end of his ministry, Jesus is with his guys, his disciples, and he's about to be arrested. And even though he's already told them what's going to go down, they don't see it coming. And he says to Peter, he says, listen, Peter, just a heads up, your faith, your confidence in me is about to be tested in a really, really big way. Here's how he said it in Luke 22, verse 31. He says, but I have prayed for you, Peter, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Jesus says, 
I see, I see it coming, Peter. Your faith's about to be tested, and I'm praying that your faith won't fail. And Peter is so offended at this. Peter is so offended that Jesus would question his faith. In fact, look at his response in verse 33. He says, but he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Peter, Peter, Peter. Remember, this is the same guy who didn't want to obey Jesus' command to cast the nets on the other side of the boat after fishing all night and catching nothing. This is the same Peter who tried to keep children away from Jesus, and Jesus had to publicly rebuke him and the other disciples. This is the same Peter who took his eyes off Jesus when he was walking on the water and began sinking when Jesus called him out of the boat. This is the same Peter who put selfish ambition over serving others, arguing over who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. This is the same Peter who, that Jesus had to rebuke and actually address as Satan because he pushed back against Jesus' call to be the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. This is the same Peter that Jesus had to rebuke again when he refused to let Jesus wash his feet. The same Peter who denied that he ever knew the Lord when a middle school girl called him out the night that, he, that Jesus was arrested. Weren't you one of his followers? Weren't you one of his followers? And, G, and Peter not only denied him, did it three times. There are at least 13, count them, 13 divinely orchestrated faith-growing opportunities in Peter's life. 13 faith pop quizzes, if you will, and most of them he failed miserably. Not long after Peter denied that he ever knew the Lord, he stood there in the crowd watching as they crucified Jesus. Then shortly after the resurrection, Jesus finds Peter and restores him. Not only restores him, watch this, Jesus not only restores Peter, <laughs> this is amazing, he puts him in charge of the whole enterprise. You're in charge, Peter, right? You're in charge. And I'm sure Peter was like, me? Why me, Lord? I've failed you so many times. But see, the Lord wasn't concerned about Peter's past failures. Did you hear me? Y'all just missed a good place to say amen. I said, Jesus wasn't concerned about Peter's past failures. Amen. He still believed that he could use Peter. Fast forward a couple of months after the resurrection, Peter and John are going to the temple, and on their way, Peter heals this crippled guy sitting on the, at the gate to the, entering into the temple compound. This upsets the religious authorities, so they, they have Peter and John arrested and thrown in jail for the night. The next morning, they bring them out. And now Peter, think about it. Peter, who has failed faith test after faith test after faith test, fail, 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 fail. Now he's standing in front of Caiaphas, the high priest. And when you read the narrative of this event, you'll find that Peter and John were standing before many of the same people who convinced Pilate to have Jesus crucified. All these same guys are there now. And they have one agenda to stamp out this Nazarene cult, right? They got rid of the leader. They cut off the head of the snake. They hung him on the cross. Now they just need to, to tidy up a little bit by stamping out all the minions who are still running around. So basically at this point in history, it was pretty much open season on Jesus followers. So Peter and John are standing before these religious authorities. And for them, this was pretty much a life or death situation. And Peter has another faith pop quiz here. And the pop quiz is this question, Acts 4, verse 7. They brought in the two disciples, Peter and John, and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this? In other words, they're asking Peter, you're not still following that dead Nazarene, are you? And at this point, Peter, fail, 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 Peter, he has a decision to make. 
Because here's his opportunity. Here, here's his get out of jail free card right here. All you have to do, Peter, is say, well, you know, we didn't really do, you know, we didn't really use his name. You know, we were just trying to help the guy out, right? So yeah, we're good. We're good. Let, let us go. We're good. But this time, Peter not only passes the test, he passes with flying colors because he basically signs his own death warrant. So there they stand, Peter and John. They're, they're, they're chained in front of these guys, these religious authorities. Their life is at stake. And there's the question, by what name did you do this? And Peter looks into the eyes of the men who had Jesus arrested and ultimately crucified. And he says this, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I love that. He says, let me clear, verse 10, Acts 4, verse 10. Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. And then he doubles down as if it, you know, just to make sure. He doubles down on it. He says, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. See that? Do you see that? The same guy who just weeks before was cowing down to a middle school girl who was calling him out for following Jesus and denied the Lord three times. Now he's basically signing his own death warrant by boldly defying the Jewish authorities. So Peter went from fail, 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 fail to pass. Where did that come from? Because tested faith is how you discover if you have real faith. And when you have real faith, it gets stronger and the tests continue to come. The point being, God uses those unforeseen, unplanned, pivotal circumstances to grow our faith. If, if we'll respond to them the right way. If we don't, then those same pivotal circumstances can undermine our faith and push us away from God. Which brings us back to the question we started with. What makes the difference? Why is it that some people can face extraordinary circumstances and come out with bigger faith and some people less faith or no faith? Well, here's why, and maybe this will help you as you navigate your own faith journey. There, there are three things that make the difference. What we believe, who we listen to, and how we frame our circumstances or situation. What we believe, folks who lose faith due to negative or big life-changing catalytic circumstances in life, generally, not always, because I don't know everybody, but generally, they have somewhat defective or flawed faith to begin with. This, this is why it's so important that you have a Jesus-centered faith. Otherwise, when difficult times come, do you know what we do? We assume what's not true. Oh, I, I just can't believe this is happening. I can't believe God would let this happen. If there was a good God, this wouldn't be happening. No, 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 no. Read the New Testament, dear ones. This is, this is why a, a feeble, fragile, uninformed faith is not going to set you up for success. Right? The what. What do we believe? You need to figure out what you believe. Make sure you believe in the right thing. The second thing, you got to have the right people around you. Who? Who? Strong, bold, unshakable faith is also linked to the voices we listen to. If you don't have people around you to help bring some context to your pain and suffering, you're going to draw all the wrong conclusions. What makes the difference between those who lean into God during difficult times and those who walk away? What we believe about Jesus and who we listen to. And the third thing is how we frame our pain and suffering. Remember the time Jesus and his disciples encounter a young man that was blind from birth, and the disciples, they, tell, they say, Jesus, who sinned? This, this man 
uh, or, or his parents. Because see, their context was, and, and the context of that culture was, any physical infirmity was because of some sin. So they see this blind young man, and so they ask, gee, who sinned? This man, this young man, or his parents? They, they miscontextualized his suffering. Jesus says, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. Fortunately, they had Jesus to help them rethink and reframe and reshape how they thought about pain and suffering. So Jesus reframes it for them. He says, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. He can't see anything, but he's about to see everything. He's about to see more than he's ever seen in his entire life. And he's about to be on display for the whole world. And 2,000 years from now, they're going to be talking about this guy. Jesus didn't say that, but he could have. Why is it that some people can face extraordinary circumstances and come out with bigger faith and some people with less faith or no faith? It goes back to what we believe about Jesus, who we listen to when we're going through difficult times, and how we frame or contextualize our pain and suffering. This is why, listen, this is why we should always pray this prayer every day. Lord, help me to see as you see today. Help me to see this circumstance, this pain, this suffering, this illness, this prodigal child, this marriage, this job. Help me to see it the way that you see it. Help me to, uh, never was a huge train fan, but how did they put it? I need a sign to let me know you're here. I need a sign to let me know you're here. The reason that you should pray this is because, come on, come on. If, if you can see God somewhere in the midst of your pain, you're going to be more likely to keep your faith through that, aren't you? All right? If you can see God, just a glimpse, anywhere in your pain and suffering, you're going to be more likely to hold on to your faith through that pain and suffering. And on the back side, after your faith intersects with God's faithfulness, what happens? Your faith begins to blow up and grow up. So, real quick, three questions to keep the discussion going this week. Then I want to pray for you. James says the testing of our faith creates confidence in God. How has that worked for you? How has that worked in your life, in your experience with the Lord? Talk about that. Second, if God uses pivotal circumstances to build our faith, what should our response be? What should our response be? But what is your go-to response? What should your response be? What has been your response or what is currently your response? Three, that quote by C.S. Lewis, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Question, do you know someone who came to faith after being awakened by the megaphone of pain? Do you know anyone like that? Because God is most honored when we continue to trust him and place our faith in him, even, listen, even when we don't understand what or why it's happening in our lives. Bow your head. Let me pray for you. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with faith or maybe you walked away from faith at some point in the past, the good news is you're in good company because the guy that Jesus chose to be the foundation of his church didn't just struggle. He walked away from Jesus. After the crucifixion, Peter hung it up. He went back to his old trade. He said, I'm going fishing. You guys do whatever you want. I'm going fishing. And just like Jesus sought out Peter to restore him, that's what he wants to do for everyone or anyone here this morning who maybe gave up hope, walked away from faith at some point in time. Jesus wants to restore you. 
for those who are struggling. Lord, I pray that you would minister strength and encouragement even now as I'm praying. Give them eyes to see as you see so they'll be mindful of what they believe, careful who they listen to, and attentive to how they frame the trials and hardships that come their way. And if you're here this morning and you used to be a person of faith but walked away, or maybe you've never been a person of faith, but but you experienced something of the love and grace of Jesus this morning and, and, you, and you just like to know more about it or have that, either way, it would be my honor to lead you in a prayer back to God. The same God, the same God who allows you to call him Heavenly Father. If that's you, if you just pray this simple prayer with me. Say, dear God, I, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't fix myself, but I believe that you can. Your word says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that he rose from the dead, that we would be saved. So I'm making that confession right now. I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, my Lord, and that he rose from the dead for me. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me live my life for you from this day forward. In Jesus' name.